from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, I know there are good guys out there. I just don't know how to tell which ones they are. A An Argentine court has convicted 15 ex-military officers for conspiring to kill dissidents during a crackdown decades ago, uh, described in this report as a U.S.-backed crackdown. This report is from Agence France Press. Hundreds of officers have been tried for atrocities carried out in the 70s and 80s. Some 15 of the 18, well, some 15, 15 of the 18 defendants were convicted this week of criminal conspiracy for their role in torture. We don't do, oh, uh, and murder cases connected with 105 executions and kidnappings in Latin America. Oh, well, it's Latin America. Come on. They, you know. The court was the first to try atrocities committed under Operation Condor, a coordinated plan of repression. You don't want people ad-libbing the repression, do you? Launched in 1975 by the military regimes of Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Paraguay, and Uruguay. That much was reported by the New York Times. The last part of this paragraph was, to my eye, not with diplomatic, political, and military backing by the United States. Hey, we're the good guys. We would. A key piece of evidence in the case was a declassified 1976 FBI cable that described in detail Washington's initiative to share intelligence and eliminate leftists across Latin America. That would have been uh, Gerald Ford's administration. It's the first verdict on Operation Condor as a coordinated structure for repression, said an Argentine rights leader. Argentines, Argentina's notorious junta leader, Reynaldo Bignone, was sentenced to 20 years in prison in the trial. He was a former military dictator, sentenced for the forced disappearance of more than 100 people. The 77-year-old Uruguayan ex-Colonel Manuel Cordero, the only non-Argentine in the dock, was sentenced to 25 years. The former general who ruled Argentina in 82 and 83 is already serving life sentences for multiple human rights violations during the 1976-1983 dictatorship. Various regimes communicated with each other using a telex system they'd been trained to use. Where? Russia? Germany? Japan? China? At the School of the Americas in Panama, a U.S. training center that drilled Latin American strongmen in tactics to counter leftists. Numerous suspects living outside Argentina had their extradition requests denied. Some former officers are protected by amnesties because we don't look back. We look forward. Just ask President Obama in um, Hiroshima. There's one word to describe our future, ladies and gentlemen. Microplastics. Man-made atolls of floating garbage. No, the most dangerous pollutants in the world's oceans may be the ones we can't see. According to a U.N. Environment Project report released this week, microplastics are a growing issue of global concern, P- particles ranging in size from one nanometer, I got that on me, to five millimeters, or between the size of a virus and an ant. That's where I want to be. They can be found worldwide in the waters of seas and lakes, in the sediments of rivers and deltas, in the stomachs of various organisms ranging from zooplankton to whales. They've been detected in environments as remote as a Mongolian mountain lake 
and deep-sea sediments deposited miles below sea level. Every square kilometer of the world's oceans has 63,000 microplastic particles floating at just the surface. There are some 5 trillion pieces of plastic floating, floating in the oceans, most of them more than 90% microplastics. A principal concern involves what the report's authors, this UN report, uh, the authors describe as the plasticization of the food chain. I, for one, welcome our new plastic overlords. In one harrowing study, a quarter of the marine fish sampled from markets in Indonesia and California contained plastic or textile fibers in their guts. We got plastic in our guts, men. Let's go get them. The emerging evidence shows that the microplastics, especially synthetic fibers, have been detected in a variety of foods, including drinking water, which is not a food, beer, honey, sugar, and salt. The presence of microplastic in foodstuffs could potentially increase direct exposure of plastic-associated chemicals to humans, may present an attributable risk to human health, according to the report. The uh, microplastics have chemical additives, often introduced to make them more durable. That can le leach into the food chain, too, and could disrupt gene development, reproduction, and immune response to toxins in marine fish and potentially in human fish, like you and me. Microplastics. That's the future, boy. And now, ladies and gentlemen, because we're told that we do, we do only look forward, we don't look backward, and we don't pay reparations Members of the Stolen Generations in South Australia, these were Aboriginal residents who were taken from their families forcibly by the government. They are going to be able to apply for compensation from the state government of Victoria. Sorry, South Australia. A $11 million reparation fund has been established, the second state government in Australia to do such after Tassie, Tasmania. A bipartisan Parliamentary Committee report a couple years ago found a reparation fund would be cheaper than fighting legal claims and um, victims could avoid court. The scheme had long been awaited by members of the Stolen Generations, according to the Aboriginal Affairs Minister of Victoria. An estimated 300 members of the Stolen Generations will be eligible for payments of up to $50,000. The government doesn't know for sure how, long, how many people will apply. This is just in South Australia. Commissioner for Aboriginal Engagement said there's a sense of fairness about the compensation scheme, which had been some time in the coming. It will come to a, it, it's come into effect as of this year. Silly Australians, they're looking backward. We look forward to hello, welcome to the show.
From the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Save, save, too cheap to meet. Save, save, too safe to meet. Save, save, too safe to meet. News of our friend the Adam, Addie the Adam, is with us. I'm your friend, Henry. Aren't you? Aren't I? Yes, you are. What do you, what brings you to uh, Southern California? Yeah, the uh, primary, big primary election. Really? Yeah. I think I'd hung, hang out in the spin room after the uh, vote. The spin room? Yeah, that's what I do. It is what you do. The operator of the stricken Fukushima nuclear power plant has revealed that 600 tons. What? It's a lot. 600 tons of reactor fuel melted during the Fook disaster. Well, you know, but they know where it is. They don't know where it is. Oh. The exact location of the highly radioactive blobs remains a mystery, according to ABC News Australia, which is different from ABC News America. What do you mean? They still do news? That's right. In an exclusive interview with um, foreign correspondent, <clears throat> the Tokyo... <laughs> You okay? Yeah. The Tokyo Electric Power Company's chief of decommissioning at Fuk, Naohiro Masuda, said the company hopes to pinpoint the position of the fuel and begin removing it as early as 2021. And that's just five years away. Mm. But he admits the technology needed to remove the fuel has to be purchased? No, has to be invented. Huh. Once we can find out the condition of the melted fuel and identify its location, I believe we can develop the necessary tools to retrieve it, he said. So it's important to find it as soon as possible. You don't want to invent it. No, you don't. TEPCO says the process will take 20 to 30 to 40 years and tens of billions of dollars. 50% of the, the fuel in reactors 2 and 3 remain in the pressure vessel. The rest is melted down. In reactor one, all of the fuel is melted down. But we don't know where the fuel that melted down is. The head of the UN, sorry, the U.S. Regulatory, Nuclear Regulatory Commission at the time of Fuchs says he doubts the fuel can be retrieved because such an operation has never been done before. Well, we never went to the moon before. Yeah, but we knew where the moon was. Yeah. Nobody really knows where the fuel is at this point, and this fuel is still very radioactive and will be for a long time, said Gregory Jaxko. It may be possible we're never able to remove the fuel. You may just have to wind up leaving it there and somehow entomb it as it is. We know how to entomb, don't we? For the first time, TEPCO has revealed just how much of the mostly uranium fuel melted down. The uh, That's where the 200-ton figure cam- comes well, 600 tons of melted debris fuel and a mixture of concrete and other metals is what it is. TEPCO did attempt to use custom-built robots to access the uh, parts of the reactor buildings where the radiation is too high for humans. That's a good idea. But all the robots have been disabled because of the high radiation, including the instrumentation and the cameras, said former uh, boss of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. He the former boss of the NRC, now questions the safety of nuclear power. Quote, you now have to accept that in all nuclear power plants, wherever they are in the world, that you can have this kind of a very catastrophic accident and you can release a significant amount of radiation and have a decade-long cleanup effort on your hands, he said. Better wash your hands. 
Another supporter turned opponent of nuclear power is Naoto Kan. He was the Japanese prime minister at the time of Fuk. He says those who argue that nuclear power is a cheap, safe source of energy are misguided. So far, he says the government is paying $70 billion to support TEPCO, but that is enough. It will probably cost more than $240 billion. I think 40 years to decommission the plant is an optimistic view. You've got 40 years on you. I got them right on me. Nuclear Energy Institute President and Chief Executive Officer Marvin Fertel calls for federal action, this is in the United States, sooner rather than later, to help incentivize continued operation of nuclear power plants because they're under enormous economic pressures, mostly from low-priced natural gas. Isn't that the magic of the marketplace? He doesn't like the magic. He uh, said this in a meeting attended by the Secretary of Energy, Ernest Moniz. Marvin Fertel said that the U.S. nuclear power industry could lose as many as 20 nuclear power plants in the next decade due to economic pressures. But he'd still know where they are. He doesn't mean lose them in that sense. They're at the risk of closure. Pressure on the industry includes low natural gas prices, low demand. We can fix that. Use more electricity, everybody. And subsidized renewable energy projects. Moody's Investor Services said low natural gas prices have devastated the hotel, uh, wholesale energy market. Low prices are an even more immediate threat to coal-fired plants than to nuclear plants, according to Moody's. You mean gas is waging war on coal? Apparently so. A new study says the Nuclear Regulatory Commission should re-evaluate the safety of spent fuel pools. The pools store spent fuel rod assemblies from nuclear reactors. They're large, water-filled tanks. The uh, crowded pool at one such plant, Pilgrim, and other facilities are safe, according to the NRC, because earthquakes aren't severe enough to compromise containment, or uh, sorry, because earthquakes severe enough to compromise containment aren't likely to happen more than once in 10 million years. While the risk of a terrorist attack draining the pool is unknowable, but a new report written by 17 distinguished nuclear physicists, engineers, and other scientists from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine suggest industry and NRC risk calculations are off. The report argues that an accident or an act of terrorism resulting in an uncovering of spent fuel rods could result in a release of long-lasting radiation, depending where it occurred, that could drive as many as 3.5 million people from their homes and result in thousands of cancer deaths from excess radiation exposure. Dumb luck was all that kept Japan from a far more destructive event at the uh, Fuk deal. One of the spent fuel pools at Fukushima lost so much coolant it was on the verge of exposing its rods. I do that all the time. Which which would have likely led to a fire and the release of highly radioactive gas over a larger portion of Japan. If that had happened, the level of contamination could have forced the evacuation of Tokyo. Eh, we, we know how to do that. We know where Tokyo is. The coolant in that one pool did not drop far enough to expose the spent f- fuel rods. At the time, the public was not told how that was averted. How? Japan's scientists prepared an internal report on the possibility of Tokyo's contamination. For the Prime Minister, the information was not released for a long time, eight months, because according to a report in the Japanese Times, the content was so shocking that we decided to treat it as if it didn't exist. Unquote. I I remain unshocked. See? As it turned out, the pool in question was positioned next to another pool, and by chance, coolant leaking from the second pool helped maintain the coolant level in the first pool. And you think leaks are bad? 
The study notes the reactor's operators had no idea what was happening in either pool because the pools in question lacked adequate monitoring systems. Lucky they had a leak. Lucky they had a leak. And remember the so- frozen soil wall that TEPCO was trying to create at Fook? Yes. It's falling short of expectations. They said uh, this week in an, its attempt to freeze the oil, freeze the soil around the crippled reactors to decrease contaminated groundwater has hit a glitch. The utility has been unable to freeze the soil at about 10% of the points it surveyed, even though almost two months have passed since the program started. The uh, glitch is the soil temperatures have failed to drop sufficiently. You need to do that for it to freeze. You do. In places where the temperature remains especially high, there's a possibility the soil will never freeze. It's not going to freeze if the temperature doesn't go down. I know that, and I'm just an atom. TEPCO has reported the situation to the Nuclear Regulatory Authority in Japan, saying it plans to implement additional work, such as as injecting cement or other materials into the soil. Why not ice cubes? The project is aimed to stop the flow of groundwater into reactor buildings where the melted nuclear fuel, (laughs) fuel would contaminate it. To date, about... $315 million has been spent on the frozen soil project. In spots where the temperatures fell short, the soil wall was riddled with holes. TEPCO plans to fill them with other holes. No. Clean, cheap, too safe to meter our friend, the atom. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's let's look at our defense. How are we doing? Do we feel safe enough? Right? I'm just talking like Donald Trump now. On uh, May 15th of this year, India's Defense Research and Development Organization happily announced that it had conducted a test to evaluate part of its ballistic missile defense. They they ran an intercept test. The test involved a target missile launched from a naval ship in the Bay of Bengal, mimicking the trajectory of a ballistic missile. The formal announcement said the test was successful. This is according to defenseupdate.com. News reports published pictures of the interceptor being launched from the missile test range. But news reports aired a week later said it was a complete failure. So it was almost a success that by in, this, in the sense that it was a complete failure. In fact, the Hindu reported yesterday the interceptor did not launch at all. The interceptor never took off to intercept the incoming enemy missile, which fell into the Bay of Bengal, informed sources told the Hindu. Post-flight analysis is going on. Where'd the picture of the launch come from? You might, one might well ask. And more to do with our defense. Final testing on Lockheed's F-35 stealth fighter jet. That's the troubled new jet supposed to be delivered to all three American armed services. Uh, Army, no, Marines, and Air Force, Navy apparently not in this, has slipped to 2018, about six months later than planned. That's the final testing. The company is trying to resolve long-running software problems, according to top program officials. Defense News and Reuters each reported on the delays affecting the Pentagon's initial operation test and evaluation stage. That's the final testing before an aircraft heads into full production. But development and production have been ongoing concurrently, on the F-35, despite the fact that it's experienced a series of technical delays. Lockheed is beginning to ramp up production. It said it expects to produce 
53 of the planes this year, up from 45 last year. And as I just told you, the final testing has just been delayed. So those planes already built. Would you like to buy one, by the way? The F-35. The future of our defense. And now. News of the Olympic movements. Produced by Jim Eversall Jr. Well, you may well know this. An open letter signed by 150 international doctors, scientists, and researchers has criticized a secret agreement between the World Health Organization and the International Olympics Committee, saying they risk putting public health in danger. This is the letter urging the WHO to consider whether the Rio Olympics should be postponed or moved because of the Zika outbreak. The 150 experts, including former White House science advisor Dr. Philip Rubin, called for the games to be delayed or relocated, quote, in the name of public health. But, part, as I say, part of the letter that you may not be aware of is this. Uh, in addition to saying the influx of hundreds of athletes and thousands of spectators into Brazil will accelerate the march of the vi- virus, but this is the damning assessment the letter contains, or at least uh, the allegation thereof, The letter questions whether the U.N. Health Agency is able to give a non-biased view of the Zika situation. Quote, we are concerned that WHO is rejecting these alternatives because of a conflict of interest. Specifically, WHO entered into an official partnership with the IOC in a memorandum of understanding that remains secret. The letter calls on the U.N. Health Agency to disclose the memo. Not doing so, they say, casts doubt on WHO's neutrality. Whose? That's right. Who must revisit the question of Zika and postponing or moving the games? We recommend that WHO convene an independent group to advise it and the IOC in a transparent, evidence-based process in which science, public health, and the spirit of sport come first. Given the public health and the ethical consequences, not doing so is irresponsible, say the doctors and scientists. The Guardian talked to one um, scientist who... uh, says it wouldn't do much good to move the Olympics. Zika's going to do what Zika's going to do. Some Olympic promises that haven't come true. Sochi, the last Winter Olympics, its legacy was supposed to be the creation of Russia's first world-class ski resort. A new high-speed rail line, which came in at 90% over budget, was created to whisk would-be skiers. To Krasnaya Polyana, the four resort ski cluster built to host the ski events at Sochi. It was Putin's gift to the motherland. Two years later, little of that has happened with the Russian economy in shambles because of tumbling oil and gas prices. Sochi and Krasnaya Polyana are ghost towns in the summer. The parking lots are concrete deserts. The high speed rail line from the airport isn't operating. And the one from the city into the mountains, which ran every six, every 15 minutes during the Olympics, now goes six times a day in high season. The speed skating venue is barely used. The Olympic Park is described by Russian journalists as a ghetto. And the 779 million stadium used only in the opening and closing ceremonies lies idle, its roof partially dismantled in preparation for the World Cup. The Bolshoi Ice Dome 
is home to one hockey team costing $14,000 a day to maintain. The state has absorbed $3 billion in bad loans made to a pair of Russian oligarchs who financed some of the facilities. And the annual price tag to maintain the Olympic venues, $1.2 billion a year. This is according to WBUR. That's a legacy the citizens of Sochi and Russia have inherited from the Olympic Games. Because it's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. And one more Olympic story. A senior IOC official has said allegations of illegal payments to help Tokyo win the 2020 Games were being taken very seriously and that there would be no independent investigation by the International Olympic Committee. How seriously is very seriously if you're not going to investigate? It's the Olympics. We have a zero-tolerance approach with regards to corruption. Oh, the Japanese are investigating themselves. I see. The Japanese Olympic Committee is headed by the same man who fronted the team that won the bid. And they will be investigating themselves. But they'll be doing it very seriously. News of the Olympic movement. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to read the trades for you. Group that helped sell Iran nuke deal also funded media. This actually is an AP story, but it's about inside public radio. A group the White House recently identified as a key surrogate in selling the Iran nuclear deal gave National Public Radio $100,000 last year to help it report on the pact and related issues. According to the group's annual report, it also funded reporters and partnerships with other news outlets. The Plowshares Fund's mission is to build a safe, secure world by developing and investing in initiatives to reduce and ultimately eliminate the world's nuclear stockpiles, says its statement, mission statement. But its behind-the-scenes role advocating for the Iran agreement got more attention this month after a candid profile of Ben Rhodes, one of the president's top foreign policy aides, in the New York Times Magazine article. Rhodes explained how the administration worked with non-governmental organizations to build support for the agreement. We created an echo chamber, said Rhodes. Outside groups of all stripes are increasingly giving money to news organizations for special projects or general news coverage. Plowshares' backing is more unusual given its prominent role in the debate over the Iran deal. The Plowshares' grant to NPR supported, quote, national security reporting that emphasizes the themes of U.S. nuclear weapons policy and budgets, Iran's nuclear program, international nuclear security topics, and U.S. policy towards nuclear security. Funding does not influence the editorial content of their coverage in any way, said the Plowshares spokeswoman, nor would we want it to. Plowshares has funded NPR's coverage of national security since 2005, according to the network. At least $700,000. All grant descriptions since 2010 specifically mention Iran. As with all support received, says NPR, we have a rigorous editorial firewall process in place to ensure our coverage is independent and is not influenced by funders or special interests, unquote. Ask your mama. And 
from Ad Age. At the 2012 Olympics, Chinese swimmer Sun Yang had a bad start in the 1,500-meter freestyle. Plunging into the water before the signal, the officials cleared him to try again, looked into the stand, saw his mother place her finger to her lips, a signal for him to calm down and focus. He won gold and set a world record. Coca-Cola and McCann World Group Advertising Agency were inspired by the relationship between Sun and his parents. In their China campaign for this summer's Olympic Games in Rio, it's the local interpretation of Coke's global That's Gold marketing platform for the Olympics. For the Olympics! The idea that gold isn't about winning for winning's sake, it's about sharing a dream or goal with family, friends, coaches, and teachers. It's an example of how marketers in China are trying to tap into the national zeitgeist. China experienced years of fast-paced economic growth and development, which has slowed. And the government is pushed to rebalance the economy to something more sustainable. That feeling has trickled down to ordinary people, too, with a sense that after years of striving to get ahead, it's time to take stock of what's important. People are trying to lead a more balanced life. It's not about winning at any cost, says Richard Cotton, head of Creative Excellence for Coca-Cola China. A second ad includes the athletes along with ordinary people and pianist Lang Lang, who composed the music for the spots. He has a special relationship with his 87-year-old teacher, who started teaching him when he was three. Yang, Lang Lang, not the teacher. Online reaction has been warm. A few commenters were surprised to see Olympic athletes drinking Coke in the commercials. Cotton says, we're not saying drink a Coke and compete. We deliberately put the consumption off the field of play at a natural moment when you'd want to have a Coke, celebrating with family and friends. Coke has partnered with Chinese internet giant Tencent and its social network. It has a feature similar to Facebook's On This Day, which offers prompts about memories people have shared in the past. Coke is sponsoring the memories, turning them into gold moments. Cotton says, that's a much more personal way to bring the campaign to life. What was it, dead? Try electric, try electric charge. It worked with Frankenstein. Oh, just some facetious thoughts that occur to me, ladies and gentlemen, when I read the trades for you. A copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And speaking of um, reading the world of nuclear weapons, you may have noticed that President Obama, in his uh, we're looking forward, not backward speech in Hiroshima, death fell from the sky. I blame the sky. Um, renewed his call for getting rid of nuclear weapons. The same week the New York Times reports that the Obama administration has slowed progress in retiring weapons from the American nuclear stockpile. But the speech was good.
was just a little boy. I used to like those shiny, pretty things. One day I won myself a prize. I got it from the bubble gum machine. Then I ran home, calling my mama. Hey, mama, look at all the pretty things I got. My mama smiled, said, "Sit down, my child." She told me. Should I ask my mama? From Southern California, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A cashiered senior general. Uh, it's cashiered means he was... Uh, Invited to leave, senior official in the Pentagon's Inspector General Office has ended years of anonymous complaints. Now, he's giving interviews about his former employer's handling of whistleblowers in key national security controversies, including ones you've heard of, Edward Snowden, maybe you've heard of Thomas Drake, John Crane, 60 years old, he spent 25 years 
before he was fired as an assistant Defense Department Inspector General three years ago. Now he's gone public with a series of accusations that key officials in the office retaliated against whistleblowers, destroyed permanent records, and altered audits under political pressure. He filed those charges with the Office of Special Counsel, which uh, investigates whistleblower complaints. They've referred one to the Justice Department for detailed investigation. Crane has challenged the criticism by many top U.S. officials that Edward Snowden should have taken his complaint through official channels. In speaking to GovernmentExecutive.com, Crane said his decision not to go through the whistleblower process, speaking of Snowden, indicate a larger failure within DODIG, the Defense Department Inspector General. He didn't go through them because he saw what had happened to Thomas Drake. Drake became a hallmark in the whistleblower community. Um, He was a senior executive at the NSA. He was prosecuted by this administration under the Espionage Act for speaking to the Baltimore Sun about wasteful NSA programs going back a decade. After public outcry, the government eventually dropped the case. There was also skepticism from a federal judge. Drake pleaded guilty to a lesser crime to be allowed to get on with his what was left of his life. Crane thought he'd witnessed retaliation against Drake by Inspector General officials at the DOD, along with the destruction of documents relevant to the case more than a decade ago. He reported that to the Office of Special Counsel. He's now fighting to get his job back. And I've spent hours testifying to lawmakers. That'll do a lot of good. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton's efforts to move on from the damaging email controversy suffered their biggest setback yet this week with the release of an internal report from the State Department's Inspector General finding she broke multiple government rules, rules, schmules, by using a private server rather than more secure official communication systems. The 78-page investigation, well, it was a 78-page report of the investigation by the IG, singled out several previously unknown breaches by Clinton while she was Secretary of State, including the use of her BlackBerry to conduct official business without checking whether it posed a security risk. The NSA had advised the State Department, among other agencies of government, not to let officials use their Blackberries because of the risk. The report poses a significant challenge to the Clinton campaign, which has recently slipped behind Donald Trump in opinion polling. Yeah. He's now beating her in the national polling for um, the presidency. The full report, a copy of which was obtained by the Associated Press, cites longstanding systemic weaknesses related to the State Department's communications starting before Clinton was Secretary of State, but her failures were singled out as more serious and were said to disregard various State Department guidelines for avoiding cybersecurity risks. State Department staff who raised the issue of Clinton's email practices were effectively silenced. Two information managers went to their heads of department in late 2010. According to the report, in one meeting, one staff member raised concerns that information sent and received on Secretary Clinton's account could contain federal records that needed to be preserved in order to satisfy Freedom of Information record-keeping requirements, but the staff member later recalled the director said Clinton's personal system had already been reviewed and approved by legal staff, and the matter was not to be discussed any further. Yet, according to the report, 
the Office of Inspector General found no evidence that staff reviewed or approved Clinton's personal system. The other staff member who raised the issue said the director stated the department's mission is to support the secretary and instructed the staff member never to speak of the secretary's personal email system again. Clinton's private email service server, according to the report, appears to have been a target for hackers. Well, yeah. So much for inspectors general. Other Clinton news. A hedge fund portfolio run by Hillary Clinton's son-in-law, Chelsea's husband, Mark Mizvinsky, is going to close after it lost nearly 90% of its value. He launched Eagle Vale in uh, a couple of years ago with two former colleagues of his from Goldman Sachs. What? They uh, the the deal was they were going to buy Greek bank stocks and government debt. A number of investors were longtime Clinton supporters, according to financial documents obtained by the New York Times. By early last year, the fund had lost about 40% of its value as its big bet on Greek stocks turned sour. Ms. Vinsky worked at Goldman Sachs for eight years before leaving and joined a private equity firm. And, of course, we told you last week that uh, Donald Trump had had a meeting with Henry Kissinger to discuss, uh, you know, foreign policy, like you would with... uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, Kissinger, according to Mother Jones, had been a longtime confidant of Hillary and Bill Clinton. They'd spent many Christmases together at Oscar de la Renta's pad in the Dominican Republic. Oh, it all sounds like an episode of Clinton something next here on the show. Clinton something, the candidacy years. It's just Look, a- Hillary, I don't want you thinking there was anything I told Donald Trump that uh, I wouldn't tell you in similar circumstances. <laughs> Henry, after all the Christmases we've spent with you and Nancy, it... it- it just felt a little like a stab in the back. Uh, a little stab in, 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 in the small of the back. I mean, I guess I thought we were friends. Hillary, as I told Mr. Trump, leaders are like nations. We don't have friends. We have interests. I know, but... At my it... age, if anybody calls up and wants to talk to me, and it isn't an intensive care doctor, I'm flattered. Okay, well... You've only made me feel a little better. Well, that's all I was trying to do. Thanks. Love to Nancy. Yeah. Bill's right here. He yeah. he says, oh, he's saying, don't tell Henry I'm here. Of course. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that cheered me up just slightly less than the hideous new poll numbers and the ridiculous Inspector General's report. Oh, come on, toots. You've got the nomination, if not in the bag, then so close to the bag that the bag already feels full. Cute. 
Sounds like your last diet. Oh, so not fair. What was it JFK said? Life isn't fair. Uh Uh-huh, look where that got him. Hon, the Inspector General's report is a big nothing burger. Trust me, I know burgers, or at least I used to. How can you say that? Well, because I used to eat about two dozen... How can you say that about the report? Mm. Bernie Sanders has been staying in the primary race this whole time like a, a dog hungrily watching his owner eat, and now the IG has fed him a big fat porterhouse. Not all that much fat on a porterhouse. Now, ribeye, that's a whole different... Bill, this is DEFCON 5 for my campaign. Everything I've worked for, everything I've fought for, all the hopes I've raised... All the money we've raised. I know how you feel, hon, but first of all, DEFCON 5 happens to be the lowest alert level. That's a popular misconception, but after hanging out with all your general pals, if anybody should know better, it's you. The popular understanding is that it's the highest alert level. I try to talk in a language that resonates with ordinary people. I have to, lacking your gift for seducing them. Hey, now, wait, just... I'm talking about voters. What did you think I was talking about? Okay, hon, I know you're upset. Upset? You think I'm upset? The man whom I ran against and did a lot better than the Sandman is doing against me, mm-hmm. and for whom I loyally served for four horrible years, mm-hmm. that man can't even keep one of his own inspectors general from savaging me on the eve of the California primary? <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough he hasn't had the cojones to endorse me, but this... This... This is the way he plays the long game. What long game? He's already packing the big bags for Chicago. He lets this little pop gun go off in the home stretch of the primary campaign so he can head off any hotheads at the Justice Department from coming at you in the general. He's inoculating you and himself. You should be sending him champagne or at the very least some fine sparkling water. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just tired. Well, of course you're tired. You're tired of smiling. You're tired of yelling over a cheering crowd. You're tired of shaking hands and looking like you're listening. You're tired of... Hey, why are you doing this anyway? You of all people should know. Don't tell me you got a thing for interns. (sighs) Just kidding. Kidding. Speaking of which, Huma and I had a long strategy confab last night. We... We both agree it's time to move our use of you to the red option. Oh, look, sorry, I have my hands full remembering my DEFCON alerts. What's the... Private meetings with state officials, black reverends, union leaders, and top bundlers. Really maximize the leverage of your continued credibility with major influencers. They're energized to go public. You, not so much. I know you're the boss to it, but I'd suggest (laughs) that's exactly the wrong strategy. That tells Donald Trump that his attacks on you through me are working. Look, those lying women have had their second 15 minutes. Nothing puts the lie to their lies more than seeing a smiling, mature, kind of harmless-looking me flashing the most benign kind of charm at your big events. I get to do the heavy policy lifting. You get to soar with, with more vision than lens crafters. The data shows you're trending toward a net negative with key women cohorts. Look, I did not have a cohort with those women. (sighs) Again, just kidding. Bill, I've already said you will have the economic portfolio in my administration as long as you don't produce policy by convening with advisors in secret for months. (sighs) Now, I'm kidding. 
but this email thing is refusing to die, and it's it's making me very, very sorry that I never learned to how to use passwords in the first place. Wait a minute, Toots. I thought you had Colin Powell ready to go public saying that he did what you did. We talked. He was leaning that way, but... But what? He called back and said his wife wouldn't let him. Hmm. Well, at least there's one bright spot there. Which is? He didn't email you. I... Look, hon, there's one way to take back the narrative, capture the news cycle, romance the attention spans. That I'd like to hear. Huma's best advice was a fact-finding trip to the South China Sea. Mm. Well, what have we always been aware was a more gaping vulnerability than the emails? Besides the lying women. The foundation. Mm -hmm. But nobody can prove I supported or opposed anything because of those donations. We're clean, if not as a hound's tooth, at least as a hound's lips. What if we go on the offense? We unleash our secret weapon. Which is? Chelsea. She's already vice president of the foundation. We say it's time for her to take the reins. God knows she doesn't have much else to occupy her time. Her husband's hedge fund is kaput. Mm -hmm. She's got no conflicts to be of interest. We walk away with profuse thanks to the donors and humble tribute to the recipients. And from then on, any attacks against the foundation, which at this point we could even kind of encourage some of our media friends to undertake as a preemptive strike. Well, they run smack dab into our little darling heat shield. And her ne'er-do-well husband. He did well for a little while. You know, there's something I keep forgetting about you. How charming an old version of me can be. How good you are at this. <laughs> Thanks. I'm going to go get myself a salad burger. What's a salad burger? Just a salad. Mm. The name consoles me. Youthful angst and middle-aged angst. Together they add up to Clinton something, the candidacy years. And now, the apologies of the week. Well, those Australians really are looking back and not forward. They must be down under. Victoria. The state of Victoria this week formally apologized for shameful historical loss that saw people jailed for being gay, admitting that state-sanctioned homophobia ruined lives. In Portland, Oregon, after tests revealed the presence of lead in several water fixtures at two Portland public schools this spring, the district said Friday night it was shutting off all drinking fountains for the rest of the year. The detection prompted of, of lead in the water prompted the district's action and an apology from... Superintendent Carol Smith, because the district didn't immediately notify the community about the results. Smith apologized for that and for failing to follow federal protocols. Georgia University of Georgia Athletic Director Greg McGarrity has apologized to the Athletic Association's Board of Directors following the disclosure that rapper Ludacris was paid $65,000 to perform at the school's spring football game and was provided liquor and a box of condoms. McGarrity says, few things in my professional life have bothered me more than this situation. The president of the University of Georgia said the contract should have been more closely reviewed and items that were objectionable should have been removed, like the liquor. Veterans Affairs Secretary Robert McDonald apologized to veterans this week following a public outcry over his comparison of long waiting times at veterans' medical centers to the lines for rides at Disneyland. 
Quotations attributed in the Quaker Valley, Pennsylvania high school yearbook to a terrorist and two of history's most notorious mass murderers, Hitler and Stalin, and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, head of ISAS, have district leaders apologizing and offering refunds to parents, families for the yearbook. Quaker Valley School District leaders apologize for offensive quotes published in the graduating class section of the yearbook. This is a regrettable mistake, as the school district would never knowingly condone this messaging in a school-sponsored publication. During uh, their meeting this week, members of the Orange County, California Fair Board apologized to Costa Mesa neighbors who complained about helicopters flying over their homes for hours, snarl traffic, protests, and vandalism stemming from Donald Trump's rally last month at the Fairgrounds Pacific Amphitheater. The presumptive president-elect of the Philippines has apologized to Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He was apologizing a couple weeks ago, several times. Apologizing to Trudeau over the beheading by Muslim militants of a Canadian hostage in the southern Philippine province of Sulu. Outgoing Baylor University President Ken Starr has apologized to victims of sexual violence who are not treated with the care, concern, and support they deserve. This was after the university announced that it's demoting him and firing football coach Art Bryles. Starr will vacate the presidency and stay on as chancellor. You tell me. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu apologized for condemning an incident in which three Arabs raped a 20-year-old mentally disabled Jewish girl for nationalistic motives, saying he regretted commenting on it. The young Muslim woman who went viral after mockingly taking a selfie in front of an anti-Islam demonstration in Belgium has apologized after days later her anti-Semitic tweets were discovered. And Facebook says it's sorry for pulling an ad with a plus-sized model saying that her photo depicts body parts in an undesirable manner. Well, you don't want to gross out Facebook, do you? The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And speaking of being silenced... Every reference to Australia was removed from the final version of a major UN report on climate change after the Australian government intervened, objecting that the inner information could harm tourism. That was a key chapter on the Great Barrier Reef, which, you know, ain't doing too well. One of the scientific reviewers of the censored section on the reef said Australia's move was reminiscent of, quote, the old Soviet Union. Well, at least it wasn't reminiscent of the new Soviet Union. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of Le Show. The program returns next week at the same time, unless we're silenced over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ The Planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, on your smartphone through Stitcher.com, available as a free podcast at Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and WWNO.org, and available around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want at HarryShear.com and KCSN.org. And it'd be just like mentioning Australia. Well, 
I'm going to talk to you from, from which I'm going to talk to you next week. Isn't that wild? Unless I'm silenced. Uh, if Well, unless they're sorry. Uh, if you would agree with to be with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, playlist of the music heard here on your chance to purchase and own and brandish Cars I Talk t-shirts, all at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. Yes, there's still a Twitter. The show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.